Kim. What a beautiful gift God has given us in music to be able to uh, stir our affections and and to awaken our hearts towards Him. And with that being said, this morning I invite you to open your Bible with me uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this morning we'll be in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Mark, 27, Mark 11, 27 through 33. This past week I turned on ESPN hoping to watch a little bit of professional basketball. And when I turned it on, there was something uh, being played called the World Arm Wrestling Championships. And I was a little disappointed at first because I was like, man, this isn't basketball. And I was thinking, this isn't really a sport. You know, what is this doing on TV? But I quickly uh, was hooked to what was going on. You see, they brought out these two competitors, and the first guy came out, and he was a special services uh, soldier from Canada. And the guy came out, and his biceps were bulging out of his shirt. And I, I said to myself, there is no way on earth this guy is going to lose. Look at, the, look at the arms on this guy. And then they brought out the second guy. And I said, wait a minute, I changed my mind. Because they brought out the second guy. He was a steel worker from Brazil. And his biceps, no kidding, were probably as big or bigger than my head. And I thought, man, there's no way this guy's going to lose. And come to find out, this wasn't the first time that these two competitors had clashed. And they had met before, and, and the outcome was the second guy won uh, that I thought was going to win this one. And sure enough, this was a best uh, two out of three competition. And uh, the second guy won the first one, and he won the second one too. And when I was watching that titanic power struggle, it made me think of our text before us here this morning. Because we see we've got two powerful combatants uh, facing off against one another. And this isn't the first time that they've faced off against each other. And the outcome of the second uh, conflict is much the same as it was the first time around. This morning as we see Jesus clashing with the religious leaders of his time, the lesson that speaks to us from this passage is not to let your foolish pride prevent you from surrendering to Jesus' authority. No matter what kind of power you think you have or no matter what kind of authority you might claim, do not let your foolish pride prevent you from surrendering your life to the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you at this time, if you are able to, please stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God, if you are able. If not, that is fine. We'll be reading together from Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 27. And these words were written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you 
by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time just pleading with you, God, that your Spirit would draw us closer to you. Father, that you would lift this place up to the heavenly realms. That, God, we might understand that we are on holy ground, that we are reading and studying holy words. Because, God, we do believe you have spoken these words. Therefore, they are true and trustworthy. They are powerful and they are authoritative. Lord, as we submit to what you say, I pray we would surrender our lives to Christ and not let our own foolish pride prevent us from recognizing true authority. So, Father, mold us and shape us to the image of your Son. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted in Christ, that is the first step, surrendering to Him our all in all, beginning that lifelong process of being shaped and molded by the authority of Christ as we submit to Him. Father, speak to us, we pray. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our passage today begins a series of conflict stories that run all the way from the end of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12. And so I said in the outset of our time together that this isn't the first time that Jesus has clashed with the religious authorities. We go back to chapters 2 through chapter 3, verse 6. We see a series of conflict stories there where the actions and the words of Jesus rubbed the religious leaders of his time the wrong way. And the outcome of those conflicts was the clear vision for us of the authority of Christ over the religious political leaders of his time. But we see, beginning in this passage today, these conflict stories are more intense because of the setting. The first series of stories, conflict stories, at the beginning of his ministry, took place in the northern region of Galilee. This time, Jesus is in Jerusalem itself. He is in the temple. This is what we might consider to be the big leagues of the religious authorities of his day. And we have already seen in our study that Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It was his ambition, his mission to enter into Jerusalem to ultimately die on the cross as a sacrifice, a substitute, to give his life a ransom for many. So he came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy about the Messiah that was written hundreds of years prior to that. He had cursed the fig tree that was fruitless, which was a symbol of, of Israel and its religious state at the time. He had entered into the temple itself and began to drive out the money changers and those buying and selling the animals. They were ripping off the Jewish people, making a profit off of religion. They were inhibiting the worship of the Gentiles that were coming to the temple. And Jesus, in cleansing the temple, in essence, was pronouncing a curse on the religious system of that time. And then he offered a replacement. And he said, have faith in God. Exercise forgiveness towards your brothers. 
And through this, Jesus was, in a very clear way, challenging the authority of the religious leaders and establishing himself as the authority of what it means to worship God. And as you can imagine, this ruffled a lot of feathers. We see in our passage today, if we're going to surrender to the authority of Christ, first thing we've got to do is recognize his authority, recognize the authority of Jesus. And he displayed this authority all throughout Mark's gospel. And those who had eyes to see and a willingness to understand have begun to see and understand his authority. First of all, we see it in his divine person. Verse 27 says, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, he, who is he? Well, he is Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, Mark has already informed us all the way back at the beginning of this gospel. If you can remember all the way back then to chapter 1, verse 1, I said that was the key verse to unlock and understand everything Mark was writing. Since it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Chosen One of God, beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark has established for us as readers, we, we begin this, this entire book understanding that with the, the backdrop of all we read, but Mark's characters in this story are slowly coming to grips and understanding exactly who Jesus is. And he's displaying that authority all throughout this gospel. First of all, over doctrine. Many times we read of Jesus teaching and him saying, truly, I say to you. Amen, I say to you. His power is authority over doctrine. We read of his authority over the demons. He cast out the evil spirits. They submitted to his authority. We read of his power over disease as he healed people, healed the lepers, and he gave sight to the blind. We read of his power over the deep where we calm the storm by saying, Hush, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed him. So much so that the disciples began to ask, Who is this man? Who is this man? We read of his power over death, where he raised the daughter of Jairus, a 12-year-old girl, from the dead. Over and over again, we read about Jesus displaying his authority and the people constantly are astonished by his teaching. He is teaching as one with authority and not as the scribes. He has inherent authority and power of himself. He possesses this himself. And ultimately, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. His divine person, the authority that he possessed inherently on his own, has been on display all throughout Mark's gospel, and we, it will continue to be on display to those who are willing to see it. His divine person, but also his divine purpose. We read in verse 27 boldly that Jesus came again to Jerusalem, and he was in the temple. Now remember what had just taken place the day before that, 
He had walked into the temple establishment and he had, as we said earlier, driven out the money changers, overturned their tables, drove out those who were buying and selling animals, saying, you have turned my father's house into a house of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. He had done this publicly, knowing very good and well he was going to ruffle the feathers of the religious leaders. But here we find him boldly coming right back into this place. What gives Jesus the right to be there? What gives Jesus the right to do all that he has done in the temple? That's the center of this question before us today. But we read of his divine purpose that he comes into the temple. And what, what is the temple? The temple was a symbol of the presence of God, a place of God's dwelling amongst his people, a place of sacrifice so that the holiness of God might be appeased by the grace of God. And in this temple, this place of God's presence and a place of God's sacrifice, here is God in the flesh. Here is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Coming as the true priest, the one who is the high priest, the one who intercedes between God and men. As Paul says, the man Christ Jesus. Here is Jesus, the high priest, walking in his temple. Luke's gospel tells us in his account of this story that Jesus was walking in the temple preaching the gospel. So here is Jesus, the true priest, the true prophet, the true king, exercising his authority. And that was his purpose. He came to reveal God. He came to reveal God through his message of preaching, repentance, and faith. He came to reveal God through his actions and through his love towards those in need. He came to reveal God through his death on the cross. His divine purpose displayed his authority. But also we read of his divine prerogative as he is approached by the high priests and the scribes and the elders in verse 27. And initially, if we just read verse 27, this potentially could go really well. Since they came again to Jerusalem, he was walking in the temple, as Luke says, preaching the gospel, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. And we would think, wow, that's what they need to do. They need to come to Jesus. They need to surrender to Jesus. They need to seek the will of God by coming to Jesus and learning from Jesus. And so what looks like it could go well goes poorly rather quickly. They began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, on the surface, this could be valid questions. If they really wanted to know, Jesus, do you have the authority to do what you're doing? And if you do, if you do, we will acknowledge your power and submit to your power. If these were legitimate questions... But we read as the text unfolds their motives 
were not information, but incrimination. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to, as we have read earlier back in verse 18, they wanted to seek how to destroy him. They weren't sincere in their coming to him. They were trying to remove him by asking, who gave you this authority? This word authority appears four times in our passage today. It's the dominant theme, that of authority. Who gave you this authority? Why, why do you have this authority? And the Greek word for authority is exousia, which means freedom to choose or to act. The power to have jurisdiction and the right. And here the scribes ask him, who gave you this authority? You see, if Jesus would said, my authority has come from men... They would say, oh, no, it hasn't. We are the authority of men. We control this temple. They represent, this delegation here represents the Sanhedrin, 70 men plus the high priest, who were the religious authorities of the time. And they exercised also political authority as a buffer between Israel and Rome. And so they said, we have the authority over the temple. You don't. We did, not, we did not commission this action from you. Who gave you this authority to do these things? And so they were saying, if he says from men, we would say, no, we didn't give you this authority. And if he said, my authority has come from God, well, that's blasphemy. That's a, that's a public confession there in which the whole crowd at that point could begin to turn on him and so they were thinking we have put him between a rock and a hard place because ever how he answers this he's going to incriminate himself so they thought who gave you the prerogative to do these things what is these things well immediately in our context he has just come in and cleansed the temple and cursed the temple Replacing the sacrificial system. These things. Who gave you the right? We didn't authorize these actions, these things. But also it could sum up the broader scope of his entire ministry. Who has given Jesus the right to say what he has been saying and to do what he has been doing all through these 11 chapters? Where does this authority come from? Who does he think he is anyway? That's the essence of their argument. That's the essence of his divine prerogative. He has the authority. In a sermon dealing with these verses, John MacArthur said as of Jesus on this day walking in the temple, preaching the gospel. He said, on this day, all was as it should be in God's temple. On this one day, as Jesus, the Son of God, the true high priest, was teaching in the temple, all was as it was supposed to be on that day. Everything that had been wrong and misplaced and misunderstood about worship for so long had been corrected through Jesus on this one day. 
question was, would they submit to his authority? I've seen a photo on Facebook this week. A professor from Southern Seminary had posted it was the inside of the sanctuary of Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville. And for those familiar with the church, perhaps you remember over the past year or so, it was a church that had uh, openly uh, um, accepted homosexuality as a valid lifestyle practice. So much so that they were willing to perform gay marriages and so much so that this church was willing to ordain openly practicing gays and lesbians to the ministry of God. The Kentucky Baptist Convention back in November, voted to remove Crescent Hill Baptist Church from the fellowship of our convention. I believe rightfully so. Why? Because they were ignoring the authority of God's Word. And the professor had posted a picture of the sanctuary and the the beautiful architecture he remarked on. and He said, What a shame that the gospel has not been preached in this place for so long. For if the gospel had been preached, the authority of Jesus would have been recognized. And the church would not have taken the drastic turn from the truth that it has over the past several decades. They do not recognize the authority of Jesus, nor did the religious leaders. The question is, do you? Do you? Do you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Recognize the authority of Jesus, but also respect the authority of Jesus. We respect His authority once we recognize that He has inherent authority as the Son of God to do the things that He has done, to say the things He has said, and we watch Him in this passage in a masterful way take charge of this whole conversation and turn the tables on those claiming to have authority over Him. We see, first of all, a condition is revealed in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. In essence, you've come to me with the question, but I'm going to ask you a question. And so he puts them on the defensive. And he says, and you answer me. And in verse 30, we see him again demanding of them, answer me. In other words, What gives you the authority to question my authority? No, no, no. I'm going to question you about your so-called authority. I will ask you one question, literally one word, and you answer me. And then the condition is, if you submit to my authority, then we will continue this conversation further. You answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, his further revelation was dependent upon, conditioned upon their submission to his authority. If they would not submit to his authority, he would not reveal anything further of himself. A condition is revealed. And then a consideration is requested in verse 30. Jesus says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And so he turns the tables on them, asking about his authority, 
And it appears on the surface as if he takes a major detour here. It appears as if he is trying to, to draw their scent away from this question of his authority by asking about John's baptism. Now what on earth does John's baptism have to do with the authority of Jesus to do these things in their eyes to, to challenge their authority? What does John the Baptist's baptism have to do with this immediate context? Well, we've got to remember who John the Baptist was. Already back in chapter 1, it says he's the forerunner to the Christ. He is the prophet. He is the messenger who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the one who came preaching a baptism of repentance. He was the one who was operating outside the jurisdiction of the religious authorities. You see, John did not go to the Sanhedrin and said, Guys, here's what I would like to do. I would like to set up camp there at the Jordan River. And if it's okay with you all, I would like to preach about the need for repentance and I would like to challenge the people to display their repentance through submitting to baptism in the water. Would that be all right with you all if I did this? No. John operated and did what he did outside of their authorized jurisdiction. And so he was asking them, John's baptism, did you authorize that or was that from God? So that's what he's asking in this question. Was it from heaven, in essence? Did God commission John to do what he did? Or did he come up with that on his own? Was that from men? And it was also at John's baptism, if you remember, that the ministry of Jesus officially began. It was by Jesus acknowledging and cooperating with John's baptism, John's ministry of preaching, and John's practice of baptism, by Jesus acknowledging and participating in that, he was agreeing with all that John was saying and doing, and in essence was coming to take it to the next level, because John said, the one who is coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And it was at this baptism where Jesus came up out of the water that we read the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and that the voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. You see, John's baptism authorized Jesus to begin his ministry that the Father had sent him to do. So to answer the question about John's baptism would answer their question about Jesus' authority. What gave John the right to do what he was doing? If it was from heaven, then if it was from heaven, then the authority of Jesus has been established from the very beginning of his ministry to do these things, to represent God to speak the true word of God, to call upon people to submit to God. The authority of John, where did his authority to act come from? Because answering that question, they would answer their own question to Jesus. 
And it also put them between the rock and the hard place. They came to do that to Jesus, but masterfully he turned the tables on them and put them between that rock and that hard place. And then we see a calculation is required. They must consider the outcome of their answer, and so must you and I. The authority of John commissioning the authority of Jesus, we must all calculate our answer to that question. Where does his authority come from to do these things? Since they began reasoning among themselves, and every time Mark's gospel has used this word, it's found seven times. It's always in a negative sense. As they reasoned among themselves, as they schemed, with sinful motives trying to come up with an idea of how we're going to answer him. And by the fact that they had to deliberate to come to an answer displays their lack of authority. Because if they had authority, they would answer immediately. But they said, hmm, we've got to think about this one. Because this is a tricky question. And they began to calculate how they would answer Jesus. If we say John's baptism came from heaven, then obviously Jesus would say, well, why didn't you agree with him? Why did you not participate in John's baptism? So we can't say that because that would in essence strip us of our authority. Because if we acknowledge John's baptism came from heaven and we didn't acknowledge that, then our authority is out the window. But if we say his baptism came from men, then we're going to have to deal with all these people that say John is a prophet of God, and then we're going to lose our authority with the people. Either which way we answer this question, our authority is stripped from us. If John's baptism came from heaven, then that's a greater authority than us. If John's baptism came from men, then the people, Luke's gospel says... They're going to stone us to death. Either way we answer this question about Jesus, our authority is taken away. It's the same for you and for I today. Because if we acknowledge the authority of Jesus is from heaven, then we've got to submit to Jesus completely. If we try to say the authority of Jesus was from men and not from then we lose our authority also a calculation is required you and I have to decide what are we going to do with this Jesus I seen a video the other day it sounds like I spend a lot of time on the internet doesn't it I seen a video the other day of, of people uh, trying to do pranks and these pranks backfiring on them and it was talking about karma, which I don't believe in karma. The Bible doesn't preach karma. It preaches the sovereignty of God. But anyway, in this video, there was a guy fishing, and his dog was running beside him. And the guy tries to take his foot and, and kick the dog into the water. And as he does, he loses his balance, and the man falls in the water. 
And then there's uh, people trying to hide around the corner and scare somebody, and then it backfires and they get punched in the face or something to that degree. But sometimes our best laid plans backfire on us. That's what we see taking place here with the religious authorities. They come to understand that Jesus cannot be tricked. Jesus cannot be coerced into doing what we want to make him do. We can't put Jesus in our little box and operate thinking we've got authority over Jesus. In a lot of people's lives, they want to do what they want to do, sprinkle a little Jesus in on the side occasionally, and feel good about themselves. But Jesus has demonstrated that that cannot happen. Either you submit to his authority or whatever power you think you have will be stripped from you anyway. You need to respect the authority of Jesus. But even that's not enough. Finally, you need to respond to the authority of Jesus. You can recognize, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. You can even respect his authority and say, wow, he does possess all authority. But until you respond and surrender yourself to that authority, you will not and cannot be saved. You must respond to His authority by surrendering your all in all to Him. We see in the passage here first a stubborn refusal by the authorities. Basically, they plead the fifth, answering Jesus. They said, we do not know. We don't know. But you know, in reality, they did know. They did know. But they were just too cowardly to acknowledge and give their answer. Because you see, if they had eyes to see and humble hearts that were willing to learn and follow God, they knew. They knew. But they would rather deny what their eyes were telling them to hold on to what they perceived to be their own power. Again, a lot of people want to do whatever they want to do. I want to live my life my way and the God that I worship, the Jesus that I believe in, you see what we're doing there? We're trying to make ourselves more authoritative than Jesus. We're trying to make ourselves the determiner about what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. Well, you might say that Jesus is against this, but the Jesus that I believe in, well, he's okay with this. You see, there is a stubborn refusal, their prideful arrogance refused to allow them to acknowledge the fact that was right before them. You know, saying if it, if it was a snake, it would have bit them. The authority of Jesus was clearly on display. Even through this conversation, they must acknowledge, wow, this man is authoritative. But they would rather reject him and hold on to their own free will than to surrender and submit. You know why? Because it would cost them everything. And it will cost you everything. 
to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, to acknowledge that Jesus has the authority to do these things. If you acknowledge that, it's going to call for you to lay it all down and pick up a cross and follow him. People don't want to do that. Whoa, that's a little extreme for me. Thank you. I would rather just continue on my good life, my happy life, and just hope that Jesus will just bless what I'm doing. That's not Christianity. That's not what gets you into heaven. Jesus says, if anyone must come after me, he must pick up his cross, die to self, hand it all over, and then take whatever God has given me and live my life for him. A radical transformation. A stubborn refusal is followed by a solemn refusal because Jesus had told them, if you answer me, I will tell you. They would not answer him, therefore Jesus says to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Case closed. They came to Jesus wanting an answer, but they weren't willing to acknowledge his authority. Jesus said, if you aren't willing to acknowledge my authority, I will not answer you. I don't have to answer you. What gives you the right to question my authority? You have no right to question my authority. If you won't acknowledge my authority, then I'm not going to submit to yours by even answering your question. A solemn refusal. Because what we see here, Jesus refusing to answer their question is Jesus refusing to further reveal himself to them. Because the revelation that they did have, they weren't willing to submit to it. They did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. And because they did not submit to it, he would not reveal himself further to them. All throughout Mark's gospel, that's been the case. Those who have taken what Jesus has given and humbled themselves and submitted to it, Jesus reveals even greater things. Jeremiah 33.3, he says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you do not know. Call to Him. Acknowledge the greatness of God. Acknowledge the need you have for God. Acknowledge the authority of God. And He will answer you if that condition is met. It requires a humble heart. No room for pride or arrogance in that equation. What gives Him the right to demand your full allegiance? What gives him the right to require costly discipleship from you? That's the essence of this entire scripture before us. Does he have the authority to do that or not? And if he does, a refusal to surrender to that costs you everything. What good does it gain the man to profit him to gain the entire world to lose his soul. You know, I mentioned at the outset watching the arm wrestlers and noticing the strength and the power that they had. 
And the man who won was considered to be the world champion, the strongest arm wrestler. Well, what would his strength be like 10 years from now? Probably a lot greater than mine still. 20 years from now, 50. 100 years from now, what will come of those men's strength? To be gone. So the strongest of all power that we see on earth is temporary, it's limited, it's nothing compared to God's power. You see, the authority and the power of Jesus has no end. It has no limit. And so why would you try to claim and cling to something that you think is power, your own will that you think is authoritative, when it's going to be gone? And what good does it claim... What good is your claim to say, well, Jesus has all power, but your life does not demonstrate that? To say one thing, well, Jesus is Lord, but then in your life you live like you are Lord. Just give me just a little bit of Jesus to make me feel good about myself. A little bit of Jesus because I want to go to heaven. But in the meantime, I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know his Bible calls me to stop doing this and start doing this, but, hey, you know, Jesus, he's okay. Why on earth would you live in a way that indicates you deny the authority of Jesus? matter of spiritual warfare. All the conflict of Jesus and the religious authorities goes all the way back to chapter 1 where we read of Jesus going into the wilderness, the Spirit driving him to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It's a power struggle that's been going on since the dawn of time. It's a power struggle that endures today where the enemy is tempting fallen men and women, boys and girls, to live in denial of the authority of God and try to claim their own authority ultimately to their destruction. That's his plan. The question is, are we going to cooperate with the enemy's plan? Or are we going to break free through a humble acknowledgement of the authority of Jesus? Because ultimately, His authority grants your authenticity. How do you know your faith is authentic? It's when your lifestyle acknowledges His authority. That's when you know your faith is real. And what gives you the right to go into this world and make disciples? Isn't that what the Great Commission's called us to do? What gives you to go out into this world and make disciples by telling people they need Jesus or else they're going to hell? What gives you the right to be that so narrow-minded and that exclusive? It's His authority. Because if you say what He tells you to say, you're operating under His authority. When you step outside and begin to say whatever you think people need to hear, 
you lose all authority. His authority gives you authenticity in your faith and in your mission in this world. Don't let your foolish pride prevent you from surrendering to the authority of Jesus. Don't let your selfish pride doom you to hell for all eternity. Surrender. Lay it down. And be saved. Let's pray together.